0: I'm going to have you open your Bibles this morning to the book of Nehemiah. If you have, uh, if you have been here in the last little while, you know that we spent the last, uh, I don't know how long, but uh, probably a good part of a year, uh, I was preaching through a series called Foundations and I spoke or preached through uh, what we have, a couple of documents that we have as a church that many of you maybe were not very familiar with or maybe didn't know we had or didn't pay much attention to. Uh, through no fault of your own, probably not that i 'm expecting that all the time, but uh, I, I preached through our statement of theology, and then I followed that up by preaching through our statement of faith and practice. Um, if you 've been here at our church longer than that, however, then you probably know that that was a bit of an uh, abnormal kind of series for me i don 't I don't tend to preach uh, topically very much. I, I do some insertions of topical sermons, and I do some as you see here, I just did a, an insertion of a topical series. But uh, I don't, I tend to not do that very much. I tend to do uh, what I call, or what is called exegetical preaching of the word, which means uh, you, you start in the beginning of a book and you just preach through that text. And I've done that uh, primarily since 2010 when I was installed as, as a senior pastor here. We've uh, traveled through some books. Some of them take a lot longer than others. You remember, we were uh, in the book of Luke for three years or so, and we were in the book of Acts for almost three years. Um, so that. Covers if you're doing math, 2010 to now. At 10 years' time, we spend almost six of those years in two books alone. Um, I felt led by the Lord very early on in my ministry that that's a really good way to spend my time behind the pulpit. Um, I have some reasons for why I say that. I don't know if you need to know that or if you need to necessarily feel like I need to justify why I do that. Um, I think it's very healthy for me and for all of you, by the way, to teach us that that's what the Word of God is meant to do for us: is to uh, inform our lives. And uh, that it's worth our time to dig in and study through uh, and, and spend time and chunk it into smaller chunks and say, I want to really know what this has to say and how it relates to other parts of the Bible. You know, one of my fears when I first did that, by the way, well, I had two big fears. You can maybe guess what they were. I had two big fears when I first began to preach like this through the, through the Bible. One was, uh, well, the first one was uh, more of a uh, caring what people think kind of thing. And, and I was uh, really just worried, what's the congregation going to think when I tell them that we're going to spend possibly a couple of years in one book of the Bible alone and not deviate from that and not sure how to, how to handle that. And maybe you felt that way. I don't know if you do. I'm sorry, I think, or I guess I'm kind of sorry. But nevertheless, I'm not really changing course, so I'm not really that sorry. But it is a stretch, right? I remember when I was talking to one of my pastor friend, actually my friend Sean, uh, Otto. He's from Florida now. He lived in southern Indiana at the time. He's going to be here for revival meetings uh, this fall. So you'll get to meet him if you haven't already met him. Fantastic guy. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy uh, his preaching. But uh, he, he did that. I was actually at his church. First place I did revival meetings was at his church in southern Indiana. And he told me there when the gospel of John. I had been there for two years and had another year or so to go. And I was like, excuse me? He said, how does your church like that? He said, my church loves it. Maybe, I don't know if you guys will ever say that to people or not, but uh, I believe it's good for us. The other other fear I had was that uh, it, it felt like we're going to be in one place in the Bible and we're going to just ignore all this other great biblical text that's out there. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but one of the things you, we're going to find is when we do a systematic study of the Word of God, that it, we're constantly finding things that reach back in other places. We've spent time over the last couple of years, when we were in the book of Acts, for example, we spent time all over the place in the Bible, because guess what? The early apostles, they referred to other scriptures all the time when they were sharing the gospel with people. When you go through the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, guess what? He refers to other Old Testament passages all the time to show them how Jesus fulfilled them. And so we really find ourselves not really missing a lot of other things. I happen to think, by the way, it's one of the best things that I can do to prevent what is sometimes common to preachers, really to all of us, but it's more evident sometimes to the guy behind the pulpit, to prevent me getting caught up in a few topics that I really like to talk about and just talk about them all the time. Because I have no choice. I don't, often, I don't, always, I don't get to choose where this text is going to go, right? Like, I'm going to go from here to here to here. The other thing, I, can I just I give you personal testimony? I don't often say things like this, and maybe I should say this more often. I want to tell you it's been good for me as your pastor to do this kind of teaching because there are lots and lots of Sundays... I lay out the text and I say, we're going to be about here, here. I kind of chunk it up. There are lots of Sundays when I look at a biblical text. I'm I'm going to be real honest with you. Sorry, lots of Mondays when I look at a biblical text. And I say, I'm going to preach on this at the end of the week. And I look at that and I think, I don't really know what I'm going to say about this. I'm not really sure how anything is going to come out of this that's really worth spending a half an hour or 45 minutes on a Sunday morning with. As you know, on Sundays, you find out that there's rarely a problem, right? And I share that not to talk about me. I share that as a testimony of God's incredible goodness. I was just honest with you. I look at text sometimes and think, how am I going to talk about this for even half an hour on Sunday? And over and over and over again, as I spend time with the Word of God throughout the week, and the Holy Spirit unfolds that text, and I get to the end of that week, and I think, I don't know how I can limit myself to 45 minutes this Sunday, It's a testimony to the richness of God's word and of his Holy Spirit and his ability to open my feeble brain to what his word has to say. All of that is a long introduction, which maybe not have been necessary, but a long introduction to the fact that we're now going to uh, enter our next uh, series here. And I decided we're going to do the book of Nehemiah. At first, I actually was thinking about this before I did the foundation series. And I was uh, debating, heading into Nehemiah. And I was really kind of reserved because I thought, you know, Not too long ago, I taught a Sunday school class and we studied the book of Nehemiah. Then I began to dig in my notes and my not too long ago turned into a lot longer ago than I thought. So if I would ask this morning, how many of you sat in that Nehemiah class in Sunday school when it happened? I'm going to see a smattering of hands, a very small smattering of hands. It was, uh, I think, 2015, so five years ago. I uh, taught through the book of Nehemiah in a Sunday school setting. It'll be slightly different this time because I'm doing it on a Sunday morning and we're gonna move front to finish. That time I rearranged things and had us read things in in different orders so I could do it sort of topically within the the book. But uh, nonetheless, I thought, okay, Lord, you've put it on my heart and in my head and I kind of resisted and now we're just gonna go for it. By the way, fantastic book, fantastic book and such a practical book for us To read through at a time like this. When I gave in to the Lord, I I use that phrase that way, when I gave in to the Lord and said, okay, we'll do Nehemiah, and I began to reread through Nehemiah, which I've done several times now over the last uh, number of weeks, I began to just be reminded how how smart God is, how, how good he is at this stuff. This is an incredible book for us for the time we live in. Today, although I'm I'm raring to go because there's so much good stuff in here. Today, I'm going to uh, limit my, uh, myself to just doing an introduction to the book. And really, by introduction, I mean we're going to have to lay a lot of background uh, kind of stuff to get us ready to, to, to listen to and study the book of Nehemiah. So, Nehemiah was a man who lived uh, about 400 and some years before Jesus walked on the earth. Now let's just go back into history a little bit because if we want to have a good understanding of the book of Nehemiah, we're going to have to have a good historical background. I'm, I, again, I, I say I'm sorry and, I, and sometimes you guys come and correct me afterwards a little bit and say, don't say you're sorry. And I, I hope you know, Like, maybe I shouldn't admit this. A lot of times when I say sorry, I, I don't really mean like I'm actually sorry. Like, I, I, I don't know. It's kind of, Dan, you can laugh. I, I don't know. It's, I just ruined any time I say sorry to anybody from now on when I do something bad and to say I'm sorry, you'd be like, yeah, you don't really mean that. I do then. I don't now. When I start preaching, you know what I mean, right? Like, if you're a little bored with history, I'm sorry. But I love history, so I'm hoping to make it not too boring for you. Um, I think for us to understand Nehemiah correctly and what's going to happen in the book of Nehemiah, we have to have a good understanding of what, what happened before then. So, just a real quick run through. We read about the kings and the life of Israel as a nation when we read the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, right? We get historical accounts of how they went from a nation with had no king and how they first got a king and then how they had the more kings. And as we read about this history, these were people Called out by God, delivered in the most miraculous and powerful ways uh, from the nation of Egypt, taken on this long journey because of their hard hearts and their stiff necks, and they finally come in the promised land, and God establishes them and they, and they have this this rise that goes up to the top where you see men like David who become king, you see his son Solomon become king, but on the heels of that you begin to see this descent right you begin to see them slide into idolatry, you begin to recognize that though God said over and over and over again don't intermingle with the countries around you because they, they, they have idol worship. They do things I don't want you to do. They treat neighbors like I don't want you to treat them. And we want you to stay uh, sort of this, this called out chosen people. And they said, yeah, you know, we really like what they're doing. And we really think their women look really nice. and so We want to get married to them. And we think it's nice to have alliances. And we think it's nice to protect ourselves. And we think it's nice to try to get more territory or, or do whatever, whatever's going on in their heads. We wish we could do some things they were doing. Sounds pretty familiar, right, to how we live our lives today. Ouch! We see this descent, and in fact, soon after Solomon left the throne, his son came and he said, "If you thought my dad was tough on you, which he was, by the way, but if you thought my dad was tough on you, I'm going to be even tougher." And that caused the split of the nation. And they had 10 tribes in the north, which retained the name Israel. And they had two tribes in the south, which became known as Judah. And it was in the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, that we have Jerusalem as the capital. That's where the temple was and all those things. And we see this decline and we see this decline. I'm going to just give you a little quick uh, timeline. Oops, better turn my clicker on. Give you a little quick timeline uh, just for some dates. And You don't have to know these things necessarily, but if you're a history nerd like I am, then they're helpful for you. The northern ten tribes of Israel were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. I'll put up there that's the Assyrian Empire. They were taken into captivity by the Assyrians around 732 B.C. Now, there's actually, as much of this stuff works, it was not like this, this like, like, nation of Israel, and then, and no longer nation of Israel. There's, there's, there's this carrying some people off, and there's, they took these towns, and then they lost these towns. And, and, but, but overall, we, we say that around 732 BC, the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, were carried off into captivity and ceased to exist as a sovereign nation. Now, as time went by, another uh, empire came along that overtook the Assyrian Empire. This is world history. Another empire came along that took over the the Assyrian Empire and became the next sort of global uh, dominant force. They were known as the Babylonian Empire. During the Babylonian Empire, we now see in three different waves, in three different stages, they came and made war against the kingdom of Judah, and they took, carried captives off, they captured towns, and they took people into exile. Three different waves. The first one happened around 606 BC. It is with this one that Daniel is carried, I believe if I have my history right, that Daniel is carried off into exile. In 597 BC, the next one happened. So you see some time traveled about, uh, what is that, 6 plus 3, about 9 years. And then finally in 586 BC, they make a completion of it. They ransack the uh, city of Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. And the kingdom of Judah is fully and finally finished. By the way, back in 606 is when the temple worship stopped and it is, uh, and then and during those, the latter years there that I have up there is when this guy named Jeremiah was prophesying. And you remember that he prophesied uh, the 70 years of, uh, of, of there being uh, the land lying fallow. Well, that's important because of what we're going to get to here in a little bit. That, that began, that started by, there with 606, that, that's a year. 586, everything is utterly destroyed. They're carried off. Now, there are some living there still, but they're, uh, they're scattered and they're of, of no importance. They're, of no, um, uh, they're, not, they're not significant. Uh, they're, uh, most of them are carried off into exile into the Babylonian Empire somewhere and scattered around, uh, purposefully scattered around so they can, uh, they lose their identity. They lose their, uh, who they are. They lose their, uh, their worship. They lose all kinds of things. They become assimilated into the Babylonian Empire. Now, uh, it turns out that time is going to keep... Actually, you know what? I was going to read a, a reference just to kind of give you, solidify this, make you think that I'm not just making things up. At the very end of 2 Chronicles, let me read this for you. The very end of 2 Chronicles, I need to follow my notes. That way I stay on task. Chapter 36 of 2 Chronicles, by the way, if you want to follow along, uh, I'll read some verses here. Chapter 36 tells us why the nation of Judah declined, which is really an overlay of, of Israel itself. In verse 15, it says that the Lord God... Uh, the God of their fathers, he persistently, this is my paraphrase, persistently sent them prophets, persistently sent them messengers to warn them and to get them to correct their actions, but they despised his words, they scoffed at his prophets, and finally the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Now pay careful attention. For you and I should see that we, it is possible for us to spurn the word of God. It is possible for us to say no, to despise what God has to say. It's possible for us to, uh, to push that away and say, no, I want to keep doing what I want to do. But it does make it clear that eventually there comes the wrath of God and he rises against his people until there is no remedy anymore. These are God's people. One of the greatest travesties... One of the greatest, this is, you'll get a bit of my theology here. One of the greatest travesties of the modern church, I believe, is that we have lost the idea or we have believed the idea that with the advent of Jesus and the new covenant that God no longer gets angry when we disobey or or don't follow what he wants us to do. We make this dividing line and say, well, the nation of Israel, God's people back then under the old covenant, when they disobeyed, because we call it a covenant of works. When they disobeyed, then, uh, then, then, then God came and he, he got angry at them and he, and he made them suffer for it. But us, under the new covenant of grace, God no longer operates that way. When we disobey, when we do what we want to, when we spurn the word of God, that God doesn't get angry. He doesn't care. Let me ask you what I think is a rhetorical question. If you disobey or violate a covenant of works and God gets angry over here, do you think he will be more or less angry if you violate or spurn a covenant of grace in which God has freely shared his grace and given himself to you? Which do you think will incur more wrath, the more wrath of God? If you're going to even call on those things. Actually, I think the answer is in Scripture. Hebrews makes it very clear those of us who have tasted and seen who God is, who, who know what the, what the mercy of grace of God is like, and we turn away and we spurn the blood of the covenant and we uh, crucify Jesus all over again, how much more wrath does, does that incur from God than the former? I did, that's a paraphrase. You can read about it in Hebrews chapter, someone help me out, 13, 12, somewhere in there, homework assignment. Find out which chapter Hebrews is, it, and then read it. I'll do the same. Well, I never read the verse I was going to read. See, this is what happens. When I don't follow my notes. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 17. Here's what he says. Therefore he, God, brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate it kept sabbath to fulfill the 70 years. This is the end of the book of Chronicles. This is how it ends actually there's a few more verses that match the beginning of Ezra, but that's how the book ends. We've now slid all the way down into exile into destruction into the sort of the bottom and the uh and the land lay that way for 70 years now as i have up here on the screen already another change of empire happens on the global scale think of the story of daniel you guys remember the story of daniel and he's he's in there with uh what is his name Belteshazzar, and and they're 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 boasting about how great the kingdom is and they get this hand that appears and writes on the wall you guys remember that Many, many, take a parson, I think, are the, are, the, are the words that are written on there. Your time is measured. And that very night, that very night, the kingdom changed. And this new empire opened up, which was the Persian Empire. Now, they had been growing, but they t- overthrew the, the Babylonian Empire. Again, these things don't happen cut and dried. But they became the new global power. Now, when you read in the book of Ezra, this is how it opens up. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia... So this is the new reign. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now imagine that, by the way. Here's the, here's the the great the, the most powerful man in the known world at that time. And he's right. God had given him all these kingdoms uh, under heaven, and he's in control of much of them. He's not in control of the entire world, but he's in control of much of the known world at that time. And he says this, The God of heaven has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Isn't that interesting? I want you to notice right away, you're gonna, we're going to hear this a lot. You probably hear me say this all the time when I'm preaching from the word of God because it's true all the time. But I want you to notice that it's the first year of, this, of the reign of Cyrus and Ezra is very clear here. He says, all these things happen. Everything we're about to read, everything we're about to study in the book of Nehemiah happens so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Or just shorten it up, so that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled. Friends, can I tell you again, I, you, you've heard me say this over and over and over again, but I want to, I want to get it ingrained in us so that it is like, like default. We don't even have to, it's, it's like natural instinct. God is in control of things. All of this that we're reading is about the fact that God is making things happen. He is orchestrating events. He's using people and he's using his own people and he's using people who, who want nothing to do with him. And he's still doing it. And he's arranging things according to his word. His word will never fail. So when you read things that are said that will happen in here and you look around and say they haven't happened yet, it will happen sometime. I cannot tell you when for sure, but it will happen. For his word does not fail. Anyway. Thus says Cyrus king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Translate. New king, he comes in and he says, hey, God is telling me I need to build him a house in Jerusalem which has been destroyed by the Babylonians. So anywhere in my kingdom, anyone who's living that's from that kingdom down there, from Judah, if you want to go back and start rebuilding that, you may do so. In fact, when you go, those people living around you, they should help you out. They should give you silver and gold, any other free will offerings, anything else to help that happen. This, by the way, is happening in 536 B.C., That's uh, the 70 years from the 606 to 536 B.C. And the man who is the chief man in charge of what's happening is a man by the name of Zerubbabel. You're going to read about this. If you read the book of Ezra, you're going to read about it in chapters 1 through 6. Zerubbabel is the man put in charge of rebuilding the temple. And they do it. It takes some time. About 30 years, in fact. It takes some time. They start. They stop. Read the book of Ezra. They start. They stop. They, they, They get going. They face opposition. They stop. They go build their own houses. They do other things. By the way contemporaries of this guy are the prophets that we know as Zechariah and Haggai. And both of them have messages for this man, Zerubbabel, and the remnant that has come back to Jerusalem to rebuild. If you read those books, the minor prophets, you're going to see that they're telling them, Haggai especially, says, hey, hold on guys, you're living in houses. But God's house isn't finished yet. Zerubbabel, step up to the task. This is why you came back. Finish the work. And in fact, because like I said, it takes about 30 years. They do finish uh, the temple. It's not a very, remember, the, remember that line that's in there? It's not very, fa- it's not very, it's not very awe-inspiring. There were those among them who knew what the glory of the old temple was, and they wept when they saw the new one. And there were those there who were so inspired with the fact and so, so, uh, so emotionally charged with the fact that God again led another temple that they wept, and the weeping of the two mingled together, and it was heard. Far and wide, this is that's what it says in Ezra. 457 BC, 19? No, no, I didn't do my math right. More than 19. See, it always messes me up when I'm doing math and in, in going backwards. How many years is it, Heidi? Say it louder so I can hear you. 79, 79 years later, we have another. Uh, uh, return, group of exiles that returns. Now, there may have been other people that returned, by the way, but we have three major ones that are recorded in Scripture. This time, they are led by a man named Ezra. If you would look in Ezra chapter 7, it says, Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, that means after this is after the temple is built and the Passover celebrated. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Saraiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Mariath, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra, that's the guy, follow him all the way down the lineage, that's the guy. Ezra went up from Babylon, from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. He led another group back and Ezra began to rebuild a spiritual house there. Now the, the temple was there, but he began to rebuild a spiritual house there among the remnants in Jerusalem. He will be joined very soon by this man, Nehemiah, we're going to get to. But I want to say one thing, if you permit me, one little aside this morning. uh, I know this all introduction uh, sermon is not a lot of teaching stuff, but there's one thing I want to point out because we're not going to really spend time in the book of Ezra, but there's an absolutely fantastic line, fantastic verse, every one of us should be acquainted with it tucked away in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. you want to, I just read you that read to you that Ezra the, hand, the, the the king gave him whatever he wanted to and the hand of the Lord was on him and blessed him. Do you want to know why? I'll tell you the reason why that was true for Ezra. It's in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is why God gave him favor. If you sit here this morning and ask yourself, what can I do to have God give his favor, his blessing? What? Now, I, I want to make sure you understand, God gives his mercy to whom he will, right? So uh, we, we get unmerited favor all the time. But if you want the Lord to look at you and say, as he did of Job, have you considered my servant Job? If you want him to look at you and say, here's the person that I can pour my favor onto, that I can give favor to them with the people around them, Here's a recipe for what you want. Look at what it says in there. He says he set his heart. He decided inside of his heart. He said, I want to do this. I'm committing to do this. I will study the law of the Lord. I will study what God wants. And then I will do it. And then I will tell others about it. You see that? Friends, church, we need people like this in our church. Church. We need young men, old men, young women, old women. We need people like this in our church who have set in their heart to say, I will study God's word, I will do what it says, and I'll tell other people around, it, around me as well. There's a whole message in there that I'm not going to get there today. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to take time to get there today, but friends, take that verse, chew on it for a day or a week or a month or a year or whatever it takes until your heart is so inclined to say, that's what I want to do. That's where I want to be. I want to know God's word. And then I want to do it myself. And then I want to tell people about it. Can I, can, I, can I tell you something yet? I told you it was just a little aside. But can I tell you something? The problem we often have is we often skip that middle step sometimes. We say, well, we maybe know what it says. And we would like to tell other people all about it. But we forgot the middle piece that is the setting our heart on doing what God has said. Ourselves first. Anyway, because of this, Ezra, uh, God's favor was with him, and he received whatever he needed and wanted from the king, and he also led a group of exiles. And then we come to, back to our timeline here, we come to 444 BC, 13 years after Ezra came, a man named Nehemiah led a group of exiles back. And the main purpose of his group, as we're going to find out, was to not rebuild the temple, which has already been done, but to rebuild the city of Jerusalem itself to restore the city of Jerusalem itself. We read about this in the book of Nehemiah, of course, which is what we're going to study. By the way, uh, Nehemiah was originally part of the book of Ezra. So it was first and second Ezra. Uh, I think uh, it was when Jerome uh, did the Latin translation of the Bible called the Vulgate that he separated, uh, separated the two books and called one Ezra and one Nehemiah. So they were originally uh, would have been known just as all of Ezra, the history of uh, f- from Ezra. Now they're recorded, it's, uh, he begins the book of Nehemiah with the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, which is I think why uh, they changed uh, the title, why, why Jerome changed the title and said this should be called Nehemiah because it's, it's uh, what we're going to be hearing. Now, a lot of background for you, a lot of history that you may have wanted to fall asleep and maybe in fact did fall asleep in, but I want to make sure you are awake for this next part because I'm going to give us an overview of what we hope to gain from studying the book of Nehemiah. Again, we're not really going to get into the text itself. I read the very first part of the very first verse, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hechaliah. But I want to share with you three areas of application that we're going to, I'm going to seek to uh, expose us to as we go through the study of this book of Nehemiah. Three different areas, three different places that we say, hey, what I'm reading this is what I have to, this is where I take it. This is, this, is, this is what this has to say to me. The first should be quite common sense and quite expected. And that is historical. This is, after all, a historical document of actual things that actually happened with an actual group of people. You'll hear me say it a lot of times. You may, if you know, if you're familiar with the book of Nehemiah, you may know that there's a couple of places where there's some really long lists of names, right? And we're going to read them. We may not do much more than read them, but we're going to read them. Because I think it's important to recognize this is a historical writing. This is actual truth being written about real people. And I think that's why we have those names recorded. So that we know these are real people. Like these people actually lived and, and we could record their names and all the groups and how they, where they fit. Because they're real people. This is not some fantasy. This is not some story made up. This is not, this is not just about teaching points. It's about history. Now by the way, even if you don't love history like I do, I do think you should be uh, aware of history. You should know what history is. You should you should be aware of what God says that happened, because as you know, there's the maxim, right? That history has a tendency to repeat itself. We see that happening, which is why it's very devastating if we want to get rid of things we don't like in history, because that's probably a good sign that we're about to repeat them. We want to know what's recorded in history. So we're going to treat this as a historical letter that Nehemiah wrote to us, and we're going to learn from it that way. That's not the only place, though. I believe there's humongous areas of application, spiritually speaking. You know, just about everywhere in the Bible, as it's recording actual events, physical things that happened, uh, real people that lived, in all of those recountings, there's always spiritual application with it, right? There's always things happening on multiple levels, With the Word of God. And so while we can read about real people who did real things, it is not just a historical document that's way back there, right? It's not just about the fact that there's some people that left uh, the Persian Empire, they came back, they rebuilt uh, a wall, they rebuilt a city. It's not just about that. There's spiritual lessons. Did you know there's tremendous teaching in the book of Nehemiah on things like prayer, on things like how to handle opposition in our lives, On things like repentance. Hugely important topics. Great areas of application in our lives that we're going to dig into and we're going to find as we're doing a study of the book of Nehemiah. So we're going to have spiritual applications. There's one final one which I always get really excited about. And it's the fact that when we read the book of Nehemiah, there's this whole area of leadership that just, it just screams from the pages. Nehemiah is a man of exemplary character. And when Nehemiah lives out his life, he demonstrates to us what a good and a godly leader is like. I'm convinced that we could, if we were so inclined to do so, we could write a manual on how to raise up leaders exclusively from the book of Nehemiah. We could train next generation leaders. Now, I'm not saying we should because there's lots of other good stuff in the Bible too. But we could train next generation leaders just simply by reading Nehemiah and looking at how Nehemiah led and the things he did and the things he taught and how he he behaved. So we're going to take some time as we go through There's times where I want to point out. I I did them a little bit color-coded if I keep my stuff together. I'm hoping to, as I bring points of application to you through the study, that I can keep that color-coding so that you can know just to help us figure out, okay, here's a historical application point. Here's a spiritual application point. Here's a leadership application point. If you're thinking about how to, how to raise up your sons, if you're a dad here, or you're thinking about how to raise up the you men in the church, or if you're a mom and you're saying, hey, I want my, my young lady to behave this way. There's a lot of leadership points. Now, along with that, and I hope this isn't too confusing, but along with that, I think, is, I mean, this is my final point here, a final series of points. Uh, there's different levels of application that we're going to dig into when we get to the book of Nehemiah. There's different, when, when we're reading things and we're deciding, what does this have to say to us? There's different levels that we say this, this has a has meaning. Let me explain. I think it'll make sense when I, when, I, when I explain what I mean. The first is like nationally speaking. The people of Israel, the nation of Judah, was a nation, right? They were a nation of people. They were a political nation. And so as we go through Nehemiah, there's possibility for us to say, hey, this has bearing on On us as a nation if we're part of a nation of people this has bearing on what we have to say how we should behave what this has to mean but there's also other levels if you think of the people of, of, of of Judah for example they were a nation but they at the same time stand in now I'm not into replacement theology but they stand in for the church right like, there's times we're going to look at this and we're going to say, ah, this is not so much a national thing. Like, this, these verses don't so much mean, like, nationally speaking. They mean church-wise. Like, as a church, this has application to us. This is what it means for a church. We're going to, we're going to uh, maybe I'll just give you a little sneak peek to help you understand this. Very quickly, like, next week when we get to the first three verses of Nehemiah, we're going to realize that the big, the big problem that Nehemiah gets all worked up about at the very beginning here is the fact that the, that the walls are broken down around Jerusalem. And so we're going to talk about what does it mean to have walls broken down. Well, if you're a political nation, of course, that has implications, right? You don't have protection, those kind of things. If you're a church that has different implications, because we don't actually build real walls around our churches, do we? But we, do we have any walls that are in place? Or do we have walls that are broken down in our churches? Spiritually speaking? I suggest we do. It doesn't stop there, however, because... Uh, I believe that God loves to demonstrate who he is and the power of the gospel through the family. And so we can apply the book of Nehemiah, the things we're learning from Nehemiah, to our families. Again, we don't build physical walls around our families, right? Sometimes we try to. Sometimes we need to. But many times the deeper truth isn't about a physical wall and if it's broken down, that's a big problem because now the neighborhood cat can come into our property. That's not what we're talking about, Right? We're talking about the fact that there may be some really big gaps in our defense in terms of what our children are seeing or hearing or doing. There may be some places where the walls are down and there's, our gates are burned and there's shame upon us because our families have been exposed to things they shouldn't have been or have been in disrepair. So there's a family application and of course, as you know, you can always look at Scripture. You can always look at Scripture and find out that there's personal application for every one of us and the things we're learning. I submit to you, by the way, that I came down in this order, National Church Family Personal, but we can never expect for there to be anything godly further up the line if it doesn't start with individuals. Like, you can't expect to have a godly family if you, it's not made up of godly individuals, Right? You can't expect to have godly churches if they're not made up of godly families to start with. And I sure think you can realize we can't expect to have a godly nation if we don't have godly churches. These are the levels we're going to attempt to apply the book of Nehemiah to as we go through. Let me just close by asking this of you. I love... I love having interaction. I, today we did not have it, hardly any at all. And I'm sorry about that. And I plan on having some interaction. And that may happen here as we're teaching through Sunday mornings. But even apart from that, I want to encourage your ready interaction with me as we go through. I can tell you now already, I, you, I gave this example of, of uh, the. I mean, we're going to read next week. The remnant is in... Is in is in trouble and it's it's in shame because the the wall is broken down. The gates are destroyed by fire. And I'm going to pose the question to all of you. I'm going to have some of my own answers. I'm going to pose the question to all of you where you see, whether it's in our society or in our churches or in our families or in us individually, where you see those walls being broken down and those gates being burned by fire and that's bringing trouble and shame. And I'm going to expect answers from you. I don't want this to be a theoretical exercise where we sort of say, oh, yeah, there's, there's problems we have out there. But I'd like to know what we think they actually are. Because I don't think, we're going to get to the section, I'm going to give giving some stuff away, but I don't think that we can in any way hope to repair any damage that's done if we don't identify what the damage is. Right? Like, we can't blandly say, oh, yeah, we want to build the walls of our church strong and our family. We want to keep them secure. As a guy, I want to protect my family, my wife, and not take any effort and make any effort at figuring out what there's places out that I need help in and then, and, then, and then rebuilding that. It doesn't work, right? It, it, it doesn't do any good. It's just a pat on the back and say, that's great. And life goes on just like it is. And I can tell you, from my perspective, we are on the same descent into captivity that the nation of Israel was on. So unless we intend to want to spend 70 years with a le- ground-laying fallow, within a forced Sabbath, I suggest we do everything we can to learn from Nehemiah about how we got to where we're at and how we can reverse that, how we can repair those walls and put up those gates, or how we can prevent that from even further degrading now, I invite you to prayerfully consider how you can, again, I'm open to calls, texts, emails, catch coffee with you. You can always invite us over for a meal. We're open to those kind of things. <laughs> Throw that one in for free. To have conversation about those kind of things. But I'd love to have you go with us on this journey. Don't know for sure how long it'll take. Probably, I don't know, four, five, six months, something like that. Pray with me. We're going to pray for our meal as well, so pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. Though we didn't actually read a whole lot of it or study a whole lot of it, you're preparing us for for digging in and even in, in just the exposure we've had today, we've gotten sort of a bird's eye view, a glimpse. Maybe of some trajectory kind of things, but also just of... You've you've, you've started our minds, our wheels spinning about where we find ourselves today and what you're calling from us. Suffice to say, God, that we are in desperate need in our time, in our day, in our church. We're in desperate need of men like Nehemiah. Help us to learn. Help us to be willing to let your word Hit us on all those, those areas and all those levels to apply. We want this thing to, to be as it always is, but we, just want, we want to be clear about it, God. He, he, we can say you always you know this about us always, but we want to be clear about it. We want this to be a study that builds us up, that helps us to grow, that makes us more mature. We want this to be A study that draws us closer to you, for we know when that happens, we will be more mature and we'll also have more concern and care for those around us. God, thank you. Today, we look forward as a church body to spending time together over food, and we ask for your blessing upon the fellowship and upon that time together. We give you a praise. We ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit that our conversations might be uh, glorifying unto you, that our our actions, our attitudes toward each other might be glorifying unto you, the way we treat each other, the way we treat the things around us, the way we, the way, just the way we handle ourselves, that it may be a testimony that your spirit is living inside of us, that we love each other, that we love you. I thank you, Father. I give you all the credit and all the glory and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you just to stand this morning. I had our closing prayer. I don't think I'm going to pray again. I'll bless you in the name of Jesus and I ask God to make his face shine upon you. May you go in peace.